Hello, welcome to Boss Woman, a podcast about women, comedy and business. My name's Katie and this is my mum, Karen. Mama said there'll be days like this, there'll be days like this, Mama said, Mama said. Who do we have today, Mum? Uh, we are so privileged. I can't tell you the doyen of Scottish theatre. <laughs> um, today we have the wonderful Elaine Smith, Scottish actor, comedian and activist. She has starred in BBC Scotland sitcom City Lights, Rabsy Nesbitt and Two Doors Down, for which she won a BAFTA. She appeared in the original stage version of The Steamy and I Dreamed a Dream about the life of Susan Boyle. Uh, she is also the panto queen of the King's Theatre in Glasgow and uh, we welcome you. Thank you so much for coming to talk. Welcome, Elaine. Elaine. Thank you very much. Uh, and, and it's a long time since I've just been called Elaine Smith, which was... I know. Great. So she missed the sea out. Yeah. Which is... Did I? I was like, yes, <laughs> you did. Elaine Smith. But I, I quite like it because oh my I God. always was uh, at school. I was always wee Smithy, and uh, <laughs> Elaine Smith is. But how did you do Elaine C Smith come about? Ah, now there's what? a tale. There's a tale. I, uh, I didn't have delusions of grandeur, but my mother did, and uh, my my uncle, her brother, trained as a doctor, believe it or not. And when he was at the University of Glasgow doing medicine, he went out with a woman called Elaine Constance Blake, oh. which my mother, as Stella McGarry, thought was the most beautiful name. It was like a film star's name. And at mm -hmm. 15, went, if I ever have a wee girl, I'm going to call it. So I am Elaine Constance Smith. Unfortunately, she married Jimmy Smith. <laughs> Some, but kept to it. So that's where the constance comes from. And and uh, I, I used to, you know, when I would sign my name occasionally, I would my mum would say, You should put the initial in. And when I joined Equity, I was going to be my first audition. I think there's a photograph somewhere before I joined the union. I auditioned for Evita, the stage show, under Connie, Connie Smith or Connie Blake, I think my <laughs> name was. And then when I joined Equity, um, uh, there was an Elaine Smith who actually played Daphne in the original Neighbours. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. And I, uh, I had to use, you had to put choices down. And so my second or third choice was Elaine C. Smith. And there was a, a stage manager called Elaine Smith at that, but you obviously couldn't have the same name. And so they came back and said, you're Elaine C. Smith. And I loved it because when Daphne came over to do Panto Neighbour Start, she had to call herself Elaine D. Smith. <laughs> that is fantastic. Oh my God. But also people think the Rab C. Nesbitt and all of that, that that's where I took it from. It wasn't, I was Elaine yeah. C. Smith, but, yeah. but um, Ian Patterson put the initial in. But his reason I love is because his gra the, uh, Rab's grandfather was Rab A. Nesbitt. His father was Rab Beanies, <laughs> and so he was Rab C, which I love. Anyway, yeah, that's exactly. a long explanation. I can remember <clears throat> the C and Rab C Nesbitt, and I can't remember the C. I and know. What are you like? Awful. I know. I'm getting around. Yeah, I think that was age. That was quite a nice insight, anyway, for you messing up her name. <laughs> yes, indeed, indeed. <laughs> so, so we're going to start. 
God, you don't need to tell me what to do, Karen. Uh, we're going to <laughs> you can start. tell we're mother and daughter, can't you? Listen, my, my daughters and I couldn't do this. There would be a total <laughs> mammy on the screen already. Oh, well, we're going to find out more and yeah, more about you and your daughters. Go ahead. <laughs> we try our best. We try our best. So we want to start with your childhood and your upbringing and right? what it was like growing up as little Elaine C. Smith. <laughs> well, a little, little Elaine. Um, I lived, uh, well, I was uh, born actually not very far from, from where I live now. I live in the East End of Glasgow in Mount Vernon. And uh, to, I discovered that the hospital, which is no longer there that I was born in, was called a bank house, which was literally half a mile along the road from here. And so technically I was born in Bayliston, although I, my mum and dad lived in Motherwell. But my mum had lost a baby before me and hated the doctor and the mother of maternity and did not want to go back. And our brother, who was a doctor at that point, he said, you can go wherever you want, you know. And so she elected to go to um, Calder Bank House um, near here, which was just next to the zoo, believe it or not. Yeah. Um, <laughs> she did. They, maybe she get mixed up. Who knows? Um, <laughs> um, and uh, I was taking home to a, a tenement, you know, uh, two room, one room in kitchen, in fact, in Thorn Street in Motherwell, and stayed there until I was about three and a half. And my mum, by that point, my younger sister Louise had come along, and the house was too small, and we got, a, as it was in those days, a Scottish special house. And we did, because housing was so difficult to get, you know, there was loads of corruption involved. I think my mum and dad said that the, the first house that they had before I came along, um, a, a room and kitchen in Motherwell, uh, they did in those days what you called was you gave the local councillor key money. So if you, uh, so they were basically bribed to put you further up the housing list all right. um, and all that. And my, my grandfather knew a guy that knew a guy, one of those <laughs> sort of things. And um, that sort of uh, local government corruption in 1950, uh, 53, that would have been 54. Anyway, um, in 1958, they had this house, but by 1961, um, they, uh, we needed a bigger house. So they did a swap. Um, there was a woman in, in Newt Hill, which is a mining village about three miles outside uh, Motherwell. Um, she was looking for somewhere smaller. So they did a, an exchange, as it was, and we got a three-bedroom, you know, in the four-and-a-block Scottish special house with a garden at the back and a driveway and a garage. And um, So we lived in, in top flat, but it was three bedrooms, a big kitchen, bathroom, living room. Did they not and, call it upper villas? Well, not in Newt Hill, they didn't. They? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe in Edinburgh. Yeah. But, uh, were, you, were you the big sister then? Were you the oldest firstborn? But yeah, oldest of three girls. Um, so I, I had the, uh, I had the weight of having to achieve. I think, I think mm -hmm. that was a real pressure for me. Uh, Louise, not that Louise and Diane, Diane came along when I was seven, so they had three girls. And um, yeah, my mother, uh, I, I suppose if you're talking about class, my mum came from a more middle class family. You know, her brother, were, and both her brother and her sister were at university. There were six of them, but her other sister was a nun. My, my, her younger sister eventually, she was a nurse but married a commander in the Navy and, and went on uh, to uh, get a PhD and all of that. 
So, and, and of course, there was also my Magda, who was born with severe learning difficulties as well. So there was a real mix I was brought in. My mum was in the middle of that. But it was a sort of genteel, um, middle class, all about learning, real Catholic uh, on that side of my mum, my mum's family. Um, the education meant everything that you went on. My mum was ducks of her school and went to a convent school and all that. But she was a rebel. And uh, my grandfather was an alcoholic, um, classic of the West of Scotland at that time, you know, very, uh, came over, son of an um, illegitimate, uh, illiterate man. Um, and uh, marries a really bright woman, who is my grandmother, Elizabeth, who is from Dalkeith originally, actually, oh, but really? uh, lived in uh, Motherwell, uh, Elizabeth Robertson. And she was really brainy. And in fact, they didn't, she didn't have her first child until she was about 27, which was quite unusual in those days. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they married. He got a good job, but because he was a Catholic and an Irish Catholic in the West of Scotland, forget it, you got to a certain level. And then you didn't get promoted. And, and to sit in those days, this would be the 1930s, um, watching, and into the 40s, watching people less able get promoted because they were in the right Masonic group or oh, really? they had the right name and all of that. Oh, yeah. So uh, that was, you know, it must have been there, but that was a perfect excuse to drink. Mm-hmm. So my mother getting married was a lot of, like, she was only 19, and, and, and ran away, left the religion, um, because she, she hated her father. I mean, really, he went because I, she said he was the funniest man she'd ever met. Uh, but when he was a drunk, he was vicious. Mm-hmm. He was, you know, things like when my uncle was going to do medicine at university and all of that was, I'll take you out. That You know, when he got drunk, I sort of envy mm-hmm. at the opportunities that we're getting. So she met my dad opposite. My dad was about five, six years older than her. He had been in the RAF. He came from a family of 10, Protestant family, although he wasn't religious at all, but um, real poverty, real 10 of them, I think three kids. So, so you know, in many ways it was uh, for my mum and my dad, I was the first one to get to university in his family. And my mum's side, it was about her saying that she hadn't made a mistake that her daughters were going to go on a day. So I was in the middle of that, uh, having mm. to, to, I was always, um, I think as a child, uh, when I, I was a miracle child as far as they were concerned, particularly my dad, adored, absolutely adored. Mm. I was this miracle, blah, blah, blah. And uh, then my sisters came along and I got dumped a wee bit. So I think, <laughs> I think I've spent the rest of my life trying to be adored. (laughs) I became an actor when when all that attention went. But I was the first child, first grandchild on my my mum's side as well. And actually I was the healing in that as well because my mum, when she got married, had left uh, her family home. None of her family were at the wedding. Oh, so, really? oh, yeah, because you couldn't in those days. She was excommunicated, all of Gosh, that. She was Catholic. A Catholic. And, a oh, she said one of the worst days of her life was she got on a bus in Motherwell and her mother was on the bus and her mother tried to speak to her and she ignored her. She got off the bus and didn't speak to her. I'm happy to say they made up, and, and but yeah. part of it was having a grandchild. And yeah. my dad was the one, once they were married, about six months, my dad said, we're going back to your family. 
-hmm. and they went back and they said look this is where we are we've made our lives mm -hmm. and then me coming coming along changed everything and I, I had a fantastic relationship with my grandmother I loved her mm -hmm. um, and stayed there all the time so that's a sort of early Angela's Ashes version <laughs> of my, my uh, early you, start. You were seven yeah. when the third one was born. So when Diane was born, yeah. So how old were you when, how, how, what's the difference in age? Louise is, Louise is uh, I'm three and, a, three and four months older than Louise. So were you quite close with Louise? Uh, no, I think we were, uh, we were, no, well, my mum tells the story of me being absolutely raging that this baby had come into the house. I didn't <laughs> like her at all. And I only, I only decided she was anything to do with me when a neighbor came to take her for a walk. And she was winding me up and saying, I'm taking your wee sister away and all that. And apparently I ran out the clothes going, bring my sister back. <laughs> um, and, but, and we do get on very well now. Louise and I are very different and all that, but, um, poor Louise, she was always, as a wee one, being desperate for my attention and all that. And I'd be like, yeah, I'm playing with my yeah. pals. So I think <laughs> we were a bit too close then, you know. Um, did you, were you, a, did you get up and do shows for your family and stuff like that and sing? And Well, not so much for my family, uh, but for friends, we had a real, there was a guy along the road who, uh, who was a baker and he had a van that was always full of, um, you know, like breadboards. Oh, yeah. And uh, my dad had taken some of them because he was doing something. He was lining the walls of his garage. My, my dad at the side of the house did spray painting, uh, put engines in, he had a crane, everything. I mean, he had a job during the day, but his two brothers came up at the weekend and they, panel, they were panel beaters, spray painted, blah, blah, blah. Wow. So my dad had taken these breadboards for some reason, but we decided they were a great stage. <laughs> we in the back garden with the, the thing over the clothes rope and we had the breadboards yeah. out to give us wings and all that. I mean, I'd never been to the theatre, I'd never seen it, but, but we did. There was a real tradition in that village of, of burns. Of uh, there was a Burns competition at the Glasgow mm -hmm. uh, at the fair every year, the Newtown Fair, and that was seen as being good. But the ability to perform or or sing in school or whatever mm -hmm. was seen as a really good thing. And also in my mm -hmm. family at New Year, at the parties we had in our they would they gather. You know, I sound like in those days we made our own entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> You sound like one figure, uh, one figure. all that, and and that was that was my background. You know, everybody had their party piece. Yeah. Um, but I did notice that the old guy, the Maxwells, who lived downstairs from us, Mister Maxwell, he was a miner, and you know he was a bit gruff, a bit that you you weren't sure of him. His wife was very friendly, but mad as a brush, but great. Um, and we knew their grandkids and everything. But I remember him stopping the room. When he did, he sat, and they had all the singers doing, you know, Matt Monroe, or they had all of that going on in, in the house with all my aunties at New Year. And he came in and he did the whole of the road to Balachmile, Robert oh, Burns. Mm -hmm. And I'd never heard anything like that. I didn't understand a lot of the language, but I remember what it did to everybody. Yeah. And I also remember another time a guy coming who was a proper, you know, like Mario Lanza type of, and he was, and what that did to the room, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All yeah. These, uh, uh, but also, 
when something like that happened, I observed it sort of wasted the night because if there was somebody really good on, the shite yeah. folk wouldn't go on after that. You know? <laughs> all right, I don't know. So I, I, as you will have understood, Karen, I understand billing. So never, mm -hmm. well, never when I'm at a family event or something like that, I never get up first. Particularly if you're a pro, yeah. <laughs> never get up first. Get yeah. up at the end. Because what it does is make all those people who do their party piece for a laugh mm -hmm. not want to get up. Yeah, um, yeah. My cousin Kate was a fabulous singer as well. And she, she did, as all my aunties called it, you know, sing the starry, starry night. <laughs> And then you go, oh, you mean Vincent, you know, starry, starry night, so, uh, but that, she was a great singer, sung in the barland and all that. So mm -hmm. she, when she sung, and I remember sitting, watching it all and going, oh, I want to do that. But actually, oh yeah, really, really wanting to have that effect to stop the room in some way. Mm -hmm. Um... I didn't know how to do it. And, and I was in the choir at school, but literally my parents were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got folk that can really do it. And then at the age of 14, I knew I couldn't compete at that point as a singer, but at the age of 14, Billy Cornley had just recorded his first album at the Tudor Hotel in Airdrie. Oh, really? Which was like a bootleg, you know, everybody had that album. Yeah, and uh, it was in with my Led Zeppelin three album at school, you know, to show everybody what was what was listening, <clears throat> and um, I learnt the crucifixion off my heart. Really, did yeah. you? Oh my God! It. I'd never heard any. I know I had no desire to be a comic, no desire to do any of that, mm -hmm. but I thought it was really funny, and I'd done wee bits for my mum and. My mum, there was a lot of darkness and a wee bit of depression in my mum about the life she had chosen and everything. She was a woman of that. I remember reading The Woman's Room, the book. And, I and, did as well. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, I remember reading that and thinking, that's my mum. Really? And, and I gave it to my mum and said, you should read this. And uh, she said she just couldn't stop crying mm. because she felt it was her life. Yeah, yeah. And... <clears throat> and to be fair, she did go back and she did her hires and got a career and learned to drive and left my dad eventually and, uh, and built a life for herself. But at that point when I was young, I could make my mum laugh. And Billy Conley mm. made my mum laugh. She was a very perjink, you know, oh, that's a bit rude. But Billy Conley, oh my God, she just adored it. And um, me do it. So I, my mum said at the party, oh, you should do a bit of that guy. And I did it. <laughs> And I stopped the room because Ray. they were all listening, yeah. and they were going early. But then, it, it, then it was at, at that point. How do you, as a fourteen-year-old, become a comedy person? Mm -hmm. No roots, no roots to yeah. do that. I didn't. Well, I didn't you're, know. You're, Glas you're Glaswegian, and Glasgow, you know, they they have such a great sense of humour. They do, but the the women were invisible. Yeah, you know, you times. occasionally saw Una McLean or you saw Dorothy Paul in the one o'clock gang, but generally they were the feet of the gag. And also, I didn't go to the theatre, so I had no, I'd never seen variety. I mm -hmm. saw Francie and Josie on the telly, but it was all men, more coming wise, all that. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Well, so, where was the route? Where was the route from a mining village yeah. outside Motherwell with no theatre, blah, blah, blah? 
and and doing Gilbert and Sullivan musicals, uh, uh, um, and I was very good in them, by the way, <laughs> <laughs> at school, you know. Yeah. And in actual fact, I learned, I had a bit of skill. It was about fourth year at high school, Greathurst, I went to Motherwell. And I was doing concert parties as a singer. My, my wee sister Louise played the piano organ. She didn't know it round. And I would do Banks of the Ohio, Jambalaya, all the classics. <laughs> and I would go into old folks' homes and all of that with this touring concert party to, to punish the old people even further <laughs> <laughs> for being in there. And uh, I learned a wee bit about how to talk to an audience and stuff. And then I, went, uh, I joined a folk band because I loved James Taylor. And, and of course, I wanted to be Joni Mitchell. I, I'd gone to piano lessons for seven years, and, and so therefore I could play. The first thing I played with in school was Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, you know, Our House, all that. Um, mm. I wanted to be Joni Mitchell by, by the time I was 16, 17. But in between times, I wrote, uh, there was a parent-teacher thing at the school, and uh, they were having a concert, and, and my sister and I were doing a bit. And uh, I, uh, I said... Could we not make the concert into something more like it's like people come at the audition mm. and uh, for a school concert and wrote this play round about it and, and went on and did it. And I did James Taylor's Fire and Rain with wow. uh, the, the music teacher for the music department going, this is a very beautiful tune of then. <laughs> and, uh, and did that that night. And, and it all sort of coalesced around that, that they mm. knew I could perform. And by that point, I had learned to sing. I remember doing the Four Marys in, in primary, uh, no, it would be first year at high school. You know that bit where they go around the class and mm. they say to you, um, right, sing a line here. Yeah. And I always remember going around, they would see who was a soprano and who was an alto and all that. And they got, you know, uh, and it was, yes, Jean, the Queen had four Marys, the night shall hear but three. And my line was, there was Mary sitting and Mary beaten and Mary Carmichael and me. Beautiful song. And because I loved the song, I sung that line. And I always remember the whole class going, you're good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, hey, you're good. Yeah, and you're all right. That stopped you getting punched in the corners of it. <laughs> and also that thing most comics learn is um, in order to fit in, be funny. Yeah. And if you could yeah. be funny with the boys, uh, they would. if they didn't fancy you, at least you could be funny and make them laugh. So yeah, I became funny. wee smithy. I get wee smithy will do it. So I became very cheeky. I know that's hard <laughs> to imagine. <laughs> very <laughs> it's a bit of a stretch so yeah. all of that sort of all of those things in a rush coalesced to to make me into a performer but you know yeah. performers were still Doris Day you know mm -hmm. it was still far away or Joni Mitchell it was watching the musicals on a Saturday but no way did I know that someone like me mm -hmm. could ever go on and do that yeah and before we go on to your go more into your career, yeah. tell us about your relationship with your mum throughout your childhood and then into your teens. Were you close? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. we were we were very close, and in, in fact, probably too close. Really? Um, my I became almost like it was a very uh, enmeshed, as they would say, complex relationship. 
Uh, we loved each other. We fought like nothing. Um, I you think mean you I, fought like nothing, meaning you fought a lot? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. We, we fought. We had a very open and quite... And also, when I became a teenager, my mum had a sort of envy at what mm -hmm. opportunities would, were coming my way. Yeah, absolutely. And she was still the type of mother when I went out the door that would pull my underskirt down going, that's all creased <laughs> at the back. Um, and because my mum had been very, very skinny when she was young and after three kids she had gained weight, she was obsessed with my weight. And I mm. think that, that it, my battle, whatever you want to call it, with my own weight being up and down for years, is is attributed to that mm -hmm. um so, so you I, were so you were skinny or she wanted you to be skinny oh yeah she she was very thin when she was young so she hated the fact that she wasn't skinny anymore she yeah. also had a my dad's relationship wasn't brilliant and they were in an era where my dad would would make remarks like that about uh, you know, uh, oh, you're putting on the beef, you're doing that thing that men of that generation felt I was perfectly entitled to. <laughs> and also my dad would take pride in, I'm exactly the same weight as I was when I came out to the RAF in 1946, you know. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and he was, until the day he died at 84, my dad just maybe, you know, his... Um, the, the way he was built. But my mother, of course, she has three kids. She's also really unhappy. Yeah. And and uses food. Mm -hmm. her, she yeah. wasn't using drinks, she didn't smoke or anything like that. Food was her reward. And she put it down to being a kid in the war where there was no sugar. So so whenever there was sugar, I mean when my mum got very ill, I remember we went and cleaned our house and we found some like 36 packets of biscuits. Really? You know, opened it. But my mum, you said even in her, her 60s, that driving home from work. If there was no chocolate in the house or a biscuit, she'd be like, oh, and she'd go into a sort of panic. Even if she didn't eat it, she had to have it there. Mm -hmm. So it was, it, there was stuff in there. And I think I took a lot of that on. Um, and also a lot of, uh, she confided far too much in me about my dad and about their relationship, which in, in and she said, the great thing about my mum and I, in later years, she apologised and said, yeah. you, uh, you were far too young, but you always seemed so mature mm -hmm. and you always seemed so much more worldly than she was. So at the age of 14, 15, I knew that, they didn't that she didn't love him anymore. I knew mm -hmm. that there, there was the possibility of someone else in her life and all of that. And that's too much for a 14-year-old to have. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize at the time, I just went on with it, but it really impaired my relationship with my dad because I had a secret. And, and my sisters didn't know. And of course, you couldn't, couldn't talk to your father about it. Oh, I couldn't. And I couldn't talk to my sisters because I was the big sister. Yeah. But I, uh, so, I mean, I, things like now when I look back, any, any psychologist would go, oh, no, this is not healthy. But when I... I started um, at drama school. Now I got in at 17. I auditioned um, far too young. I, I counsel anybody now not to go to drama school at that age. Right. Um, but I, I, I got in, I was 17 in three weeks when I started. Totally out of my depth. There were 
you know, I hadn't had a classical education. I didn't know who Plato was. Mm -hmm. I didn't, I'd come from Breeders High and Motherwell. I didn't, I had, I'd done Hamlet for my hire. You know, that was <laughs> it. I'd never seen classical plays. I'd been to, I think, a, a guide concert in, uh, with the guys or a, a variety show with the Alexander Brothers and the Kings <clears throat> when I was 13. But I'd never been in a theatre. So I was complete, I, I got in because I was obviously so talented, but uh, no, I don't know why I got in, but I did. Um, and I, I, when I was 18, I moved into a flat in the West End, but I do remember having parties and stuff uh, in my flat and my mum and her pal turning up. Really? You know, oh, they would do things like, because here was I having this exciting life and I loved my mum and I would go come in and she had a younger pal who was sort of between us but they would turn up if I, we were having a big party um, mm -hmm. and uh, or, or th by that point I joined a band and was playing in the Maggie and the Burns House and the Amphora around Glasgow doing Fleetwood Mac covers at the time and, and my dad had bought me my amp and speakers and my mic to be with the band, you had to bring your own equipment and stuff. And, uh, but they would turn up in the Maggie on a Saturday night to watch. <laughs> so you're a wee bit, you know, he would turn up his own and then her and her pals would come. So it, it was, there was something. Did it, did it make you self-conscious, do you mean? Not really, because what? everybody would go, oh, your mum's great, you know, they would, and because she was great fun and everything, but actually it was a bit, it was repressive for me, mm. you yeah. know. Um, and then when I graduated, I remember my dad turning and, and now I realise it must have been for her because uh, they were, what are you going to do? And, and I got a place at Murray House in Edinburgh to go and teach. And uh, I said, I don't know, I might teach. And my dad said, you do what you want. You've done enough for us. Ah. Which was a particularly freeing thing. And actually moving to Edinburgh, although... I mean, now it's, what, 40 minutes in the train. Um, 40 years ago, moving to Edinburgh was a big thing. When I, when I ran away from home, I ran away to Glasgow. <laughs> and that was like... The like other then. side of the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and so my mum my couldn't get there so easily. And, and our relationship became different. She didn't phone all the time. She didn't. And I did my postgrad at Murray House, and then I taught and I, I decided to stay in it. You, you yeah. on a, I didn't really find out where you're a rebellious teenager. No. But, well, you said um, a wee while ago that you and your mum fought yeah. a lot, but that was nothing when you, you weren't rebellious when you, because she was telling you all her secrets. Yeah, it didn't. It, funnily enough, it made me far too mature. It made me. I, and mm. that desperation to be the good girl, uh, that I couldn't disappoint them. So I, I buggered up. Funny enough, I think that might have a bit to do with it, that, that I knew all this stuff. I totally buggered up my standard grades at school. Instead of getting seven, I only got four or something like that. Mm -hmm. And they were, my dad and her were distraught. I had, you know, brought shame on the household and all that um, because I was bright. Um, but I just didn't apply myself. I was listening to, you know, Johnny Walker on Radio 1 while I was studying. Yeah. Um, couldn't be arsed. Um, in the next year, though, I really applied myself. And I got all the standard grades I'd failed and three hires. Oh. And 
go into drama school. Mm -hmm. I was determined it was a real thing I was going to show them um, in, in that adversity thing. But there was, I, I was, and, and she didn't like certain boyfriends I had and all that, but generally I was, I was the good girl. I had to succeed for them. I envy, I, you know, I envy those. And it stayed with me, you know. I, I remember you know, watching Janie Godley when she first came out and thought, God, I'd love to be able to do stuff like that with my audience, mm -hmm. but I can't because yeah. I have a persona that I don't mean that people don't think I'm a wee bit cheeky and outrageous or like them, but I, I'm not a performer that goes out and, and says fuck all the time or, or, or uses mm -hmm. it in that way. Um, I think that mm. acting thing of I need to be liked mm -hmm. and I need to be approved of has yeah. dogged me until I'm 61. Now I really don't give a fuck. <laughs> <laughs> it's taken me a long time. But, but, you know, but I, think, I think it's so important for people to know themselves well yeah. enough to know what they can do yeah. and their limitations or their, you know. Mm. I mean, it wouldn't be, it, it wouldn't, I don't think it would suit you. No, it wouldn't. It wouldn't yeah. suit my personality and I don't think it would suit the audience. And, and because I didn't come up through the stand-up route either. No, that's where, right. Where I had to be, be almost more like the... I remember watching uh, in, in my... Uh, when I started and, and people were saying, oh, you're funny, you could do stuff. Watching people like Jenny Eclair or Jenny Lacote and people like that and thinking, but I don't, I don't want... You can get away with that in London. And maybe at the festival when it's a different audience, mm -hmm. you kind of get away with talking about your periods on the stage of the Glasgow Kings. No. Now, you, now you can, but in those days no, you couldn't. No, you couldn't. And, and I was seen as a wee bit cut. Now, I remember because you know that I can because you're very complimentary about that stuff that I do about the popular song, which I've been doing since I did the Gilded Balloon 20 years ago or whatever. And I put it in there about the popular song. That was seen when I did it at the Kings because I, I did the Billy Holiday song, My Man, and I said on the stage of the Kings, I remember Simon Sharkey saying, um, I'll just stop it there, listen to that line. If he hits you once, uh, 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 he, he isn't true, he beats me too, what can I do? And I go, phone the polis. And then I say, um, if he hits you once, he'll hit you again. And the silence... And Simon mm. Sharkey was like, you can't even see that in the middle of the show. You know what? I could in the Gilded Balloon. Yeah. I could, I, I, to that mainstream audience where I can tell you 70% of the women in that audience had been hit with a man. Yeah. 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 So, uh, and even, even things like, uh, I wasn't talking about periods and I wasn't talking about out there on the edge stuff that was being in London. Talk about, talk about being, uh, talk about sectarianism. In the in the Glasgow Kings, yeah, that that gets a brick through your window. This, you know, so so that I realised that when I was talking about being a Celtic fan and things, I was on really dangerous ground. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. but it's culturally different, and so in many ways, I pushed the envelope, but I never pushed it. I pushed it from where my audience were. It's really mm -hmm. interesting that now I can do that same material on stage about popular songs and add to it and all of that and now they laugh and cheer there's yeah. no silence now that audience have almost grown with me and go yes you know yeah. right and and now i can say fuck on the stage yeah and they're not appalled by it but mm -hmm. when i started but, i couldn't 
when mm. did you get involved in politics? Because you've always been quite political, although oh, yes. it doesn't sound like you were very much as a teenager or... Well, um, no, Ruben, and my dad was a, well, he was shop steward a couple of times. He worked in Clyde Crane uh, Engineering, steel works were huge. Obviously, everybody voted Labour. Where you know, you, you, a Tory was a very, very rare species. I think Mr. Chippy, who owned the chip van and had a private house, <laughs> I think he might have. He might have. But everybody voted Labour. But nobody voted SM. And there was a few, but they were seen as outriders. You know, my dad had been in the war. The the notion of what Great Britain was. You were brought up. There was a pride in it. Mm -hmm. He had been in the Air Force. He'd been in Palestine. He had. Um, that, that coming back and Atley being elected and, and my dad, the year I was born, 1958, was the first, ta first time my father had ever had Christmas Day off. Really? It wasn't oh. a holiday in Scotland. New Year was a holiday, but yeah. you didn't. So uh, they, uh, and, and they, they felt blessed to have a council house. They felt yeah. having come from where they came. So they, they could see progress. Their kids were going on and getting really good school and they were staying on at school. They were going on. So that was seen as things that Labour delivered. And I do remember, though, in the middle of um, the, the three-day week with Ted Heath. Uh -huh. And I remember politics then being much more prevalent. But the, we were not a family that went on marches or, you know, there would, there would be discussions. Um, but, uh, and then I did modern studies. And I had a, a brilliant history teacher as well called Nori Bissell who it turns out was in the WRP and was a, you know, real lefty. And he changed his, his teacher when I was doing higher history about the world. And, and he also was someone who encouraged you questioning. Mm -hmm. yeah. Why did that happen? Why did this? I was the only person in my class causing my dad who supported the Palestinians <laughs> because my dad had been there. Uh -huh. when the Israelis were the terrorists, when mm -hmm. Bacon was a terrorist. My dad was there when they hung the seven British officers. They blew up the King David Hotel. So my, da and my dad really liked the Arabs that he, he was amongst for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. So I had a completely different perspective about that. And mm -hmm. that, in modern studies, was quite welcome. That there, I liked the, the discussion of it and how do you make things better and everything. But there was never any, nobody was a member of a political party or, or stuff like that. But I, I learned and got really fascinated. I think modern studies is really, really good for that. Mm -hmm. um, I got my hire in that. And then when I went to uh, drama school, I was in the student union. And at that point, um, that was when they were closing colleges. And it was a Labour government under, um, uh, what would you call them, James, oh God. Who was the, uh, forgot his name, it'll come back to me, yeah. um, uh, Prime Minister. And uh, we, we were threatened with not getting to do our postgraduate year at Jordan Hill, that they were going to close it. The big cuts came in. So we came through the sort of three-day week. I remember us sitting with candles and our primer stove where, because we... That was in, in the mid, early 70s. The 70s, yeah, yeah early yeah, 70s. Yeah, I remember. And, well. uh, yeah, and, and there'd been no coal and all that stuff. And my dad being very supportive of the miners and what was going on then. So there was a bit of a tradition in the village we came from about where your politics lay, even if you were a Celtic or Rangers supporter, that was more of a divide than anything else. Um, and then 
and my dad had no interest in football either. Um, but then at college, I was politicised through NUS. Um, Murray House had been occupied. Funnily enough, my husband of many years was in the occupation at Murray House. I never knew him then. Oh, really? Um, and they started all. He was a big lefty. He was in the Socialist Workers Party um, in Edinburgh. So he was in the Edinburgh left by that point, even though he was from Glasgow and had gone there. But the, um, I got politicised during that. That was when I went on marches when we went in and we occupied Jordan Hill College. We, all, we went into the principal at the Royal Academy's office where sleeping bags, he ordered them out and we slept there overnight. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was real um, understanding of the world and what was going on. It wasn't so much Tories and Labour or anything. It, well, and then when I got to Edinburgh, I uh, was in the EIS, the teachers' union. And in fact, Bob and I met at a union meeting. How how romantic! Um, <laughs> and I was I was really I was really politicised from I was already political, but then got into real far left politics. Then mm-hmm. the trades council at the top of Leith Mock, we were never at it. But that was also during that time my feminist politics grew up. I was in yes. a, an organisation like Women's Fight Back. I was selling. I was selling women's fight back outside the St. James Centre in my Palestinian shawl with my hunters of badges oh on a God. Saturday morning. Yeah. And I realised people bought the paper from me because I made them laugh. Yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> because I'd be like, oh, come on, you can afford that <laughs> and have a bit of a laugh. <clears throat> As opposed to, and I could see the humour in the madness of the left, mm-hmm. you know, I, I used to, we all used to, after the meetings, we'd get into Mather's Bar, and I remember one night thinking, do you know, the revolution is going to happen in Kostorfin. <laughs> and, and we're all going to be sitting in Mather's Bar arguing about what bus to get, do you know? <laughs> because there was so much disagreement and, and all of that. And I have to say what is wonderful is, is seeing so many people from those years, that would be, 1978, 79, 80, 80, up to 82, all in positions. Most of the MPs and MSPs I know have come from that. I've yeah. come from mm-hmm. that. A whole generation really politicised mm-hmm. about what was going on in the world, you know, um, it may, about El Salvador and what America was doing. I ended up going to Nicaragua. Um, really? and, and Oh, yeah, I went with Scottish Medical Aid there and met Ortega, who was then the president, all of that sort of stuff. Um, so so it, it seemed a natural thing that all the performance and political stuff would would coalesce and I would end up with 784 as my first job. And when I saw 784 when I was at drama school, and although I wanted to say, I didn't want to be a singer. I didn't want to just, you know, Sheena Eason was at college with me. I thought, I don't want that route. Mm-hmm. She was a year below me. And sitting in the Citizens Theatre watching John McGrath's Out of Our Heads with 784, Liz McLean and Terry Neeson, people like that, and Dave Anderson. And I was 18 and I was like, that's it. I said, well, I want to do that. I, I want to do it. I, I didn't know how you could. And then did my thesis at university on 784. Did so, you? Yeah. Got to meet John McGrath. And I remember, I always remind Davy Anderson of this was, I was in the Dolphin Arts Centre watching a rehearsal 
of one of Wildcat's first shows with Dave McNevin and McLennan and all that. And McLennan, Dave McLennan was so charming as ever, you know. Indeed. Oh, do come in, sit down, that's lovely, sit there. <laughs> and then you had Dave Anderson walk by me as I'm sitting, 18, 19, you know, with my notepad and he went, you press. And like, no, no. <laughs> and then, you know, I, it was a pipe dream. That, yeah. that mm. Again, I didn't know how I was going to do it. But but now looking back, it all sort of coalesced. And mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, how many so, years did Seven Eighty Four go? Because it's the the what happened to them? Um. Well, uh, was, it, was it was it of their time? No, in a way, Seven Eighty Four. I love the story about Seven Eighty Four because Seven Eighty Four, as you may know, stands for seven percent of the population owns eighty four percent of the wealth. Mm-hmm. So John McGrath was a writer on Z Cars and all of that. He was a great television writer. Pals of Billy Russell and Alan Bleasdale and all these guys, Liverpool. But he was very political and he started this theatre company called 784. He then met Liz McLennan, David McLennan's sister. Mm-hmm. They were married and that brought them to Scotland. And so they started 784 Scotland. And their first thing was the TV at the Stag and the Black Black Oil. And it was just at the height of the oil stuff in Scotland about yeah. where the wealth was. Uh, yeah. And they, they did it like a Cayley. It was groundbreaking. And I, I, I believe it or not, I saw it on television. So one of the first plays I ever saw on television, I was babysitting on a Saturday night. My mum and dad were away at a dinner dance, as you did <laughs> in those days, for their chicken in a basket. And um, I, I was babysitting, so I was about 15. Nothing on the telly, waiting on the Hammer Horror movie coming on, and on comes this play in Scottish accents, and Billy Patterson was in it. I didn't know them, Alex Orton, all that, Johnny Bett, but I couldn't stop watching it. Uh, I was really fascinated by it. So I suppose that was, it was a first sort of Scottish political awakening, if you like, as a 15-year-old, hearing people speak like that, that weren't Billy Connolly, but they were like Billy Connolly in a way, all that. Um, so, uh, 784, this would have been, well, they would have started early 70s, mm-hmm. I think, in England and then Scotland. And uh, they did lots of different shows, and more and more music was coming into it. And Dave Anderson had joined them himself, and they split and became Wildcat, was the sort of musical wing, because John McGrath and Liz wanted more like plays, if you like. <clears throat> plays with music as opposed to musicals and uh, they split and but I was still mad about them and, and part of my thesis was about that so when I was writing my thesis in 1977 so Wildcat had already sort of started being established and um, they'd been going about seven years and then my dream was to join Wildcat more than anything yes um, and uh, for some reason I, I answered a job in the stage, an advert. I was teaching by this point in Fairhill High in Edinburgh. I'd oh, been really? there for about, oh, oh, yeah. Big drama. Oh, yeah, three years. My goodness. Yes, I'm responsible for a lot of madness in Edinburgh. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Taught in the primaries and ox gangs and call it mains and all around there. I still get, well, turn it, the show was doing in Edinburgh, people turn it up, still going, do you remember me, miss? <laughs> of course, they were, they were 10 and I yeah. was, and I'm like, no, and they're 50 with kids and all that. <laughs> anyway, um, I, I, 
I knew I was singing a lot and I was acting with Edinburgh University Theatre Company and I knew there was something a wee bit unresolved. And Lynn Baines, of all people, before she was head of acting at Queen Margaret, we had worked with Scottish Youth Theatre and she said, you should get out there. You need to get out there. And I did a big amnesty concert down in uh, the Playhouse that Gareth Wardell had helped organise and Billy Patterson was doing it. And I was just a runner on it. And I was telling him that I was, uh, I, this is what I wanted to do. And he said, you'd be ideal for 784. You should, you should write to them. But I ended up answering a thing on the stage in London for a, a company called Broadside Mobile Workers Theatre. I thought, <laughs> that's for me. <laughs> so, oh, those were the days. This would be 1980, 81. And I went, so Thatcherism was just in there, political there. So I went down, auditioned. Oh my God, it was like getting into the Stasi. It was almost like they had lights on me to find out what my political ideology was about this, that, and the other. Oh, really? Oh, it was, and believe it or not, I got the job, but I didn't have an equity card and you couldn't get a job then. So I, I was pleased that I'd. I'd sort of passed the audition, but actually really relieved I wasn't touring around factories <laughs> yeah. um, and giving up um, teaching. And then uh, I, I wrote to Wildcat, Dave McLennan, and say, and I think I had a part-time job in the Cafe Royal at that time as well at night. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, him and I met in the Cafe Royal. And he was going, oh my God, you're exactly what we've just had auditions. Uh, we wouldn't be looking for MD for a while, he said, but you're ideal. So I, I was pleased at that. And then to give Dave McLennan, who became such a great pal anyway, and, uh, but he phoned his brother-in-law, John McGrath, who was casting the Clyde Built series, as that one with the Joe Corey play in Time of Strife, Golden His Boots, Men Should Weep, to bring all them back. Mm. And, and he phoned him and said, uh, I think you should see this girl. I think she'd be ideal for what you're doing. This girl, I was a girl then. Um, and uh, I was teaching, now this is, I was teaching my O-level drama class. I was doing a bit on the Chibi, the Stag and the Black Black Oil. And one of the girls, the secretaries in the office came in going, Miss Smith, there's a telephone call for you. And I was like, oh, right. And I, I said, right, you look at that. And, went out and um, I took the call. And I said, hello. And he said, hello, it's John McGrath here. Dave McLennan tells me you'd be a wonderful Lady Macbeth. And I went, "Uh uh-huh. And I couldn't believe I was talking to my (laughs) idol. And I was like, little early talking shite. Anyway, (laughs) and and he said, I'm casting this. I'd like you to come and see me. And I went down. You you did an audition. Yeah, did an audition. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I went down to the office and did an audition for him and Sandy Nielsen was there. And I don't think Sandy Nielsen liked me, but um, the, uh, John McGrath did. And he, um, they phoned up and said, uh, Christine Hamilton then was their administrator. And she said, they want to offer you the job. I had no agent or anything. And uh, I had no equity card. And so they, they had to find me. In those days, you could get a provisional. So I was their one provisional card for the year. And uh, I gave up teaching two weeks later for a seven-week contract. Fantastic. Well and done, Elaine. 
Yeah. I know. I know. It's that kind of risk taking that's brilliant. Oh, and my parents were, I had a mortgage by this point. My parents were like, you know, oh, what about your mortgage? No. And I was like, I'll sell a house. Uh, yeah. You know, who knows? But um, it, it was about, and I remember years later doing Shirley Valentine and, and being reminded of that when she talked about as a kid jumping off the roof. And, and in, in the story when she jumps into the water on her own, yeah. not knowing it, those sort of things in my life have been. And it, 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 it's been that, I mean, you've only got one life. You've got to yeah, make these, yeah. these leaps of faith sometimes. You really oh, and I never, regret, I, I never, I mean, I only had a seven-week contract and then I was out of work for four months. Mm, and, and then I got, uh, Wildcat remembered me and went, we were doing a show at the summer with the brand new Wildcats at the Pleasance. And mm. I got that job, and then I was seen there, and I got Panto and Motherwell playing, <laughs> believe it or not, Cinderella. I mean, <laughs> I thought Cinderella was a guy in drag. <laughs> because I had a lower voice than the prince, you know. Yeah. Anyway, um, and, and I became a sort of stalwart of Wildcat. I stayed with them for about three years, and... Mm -hmm. um, and did, you know, during the minor strike. And so it was like all the politics, all the music, because I played keyboards and stuff and sung. And, and the comic, but what emerged from that was comedy. Mm -hmm. That I, they would write things that were funny and I could, I could deliver you a line. deliver it, yeah. 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 Yeah, it and must then, be so when was, back on, sorry. sorry. Sorry, go on, Kevin. What did you no, say? I was just saying it must be great to look back on those years. Yeah. Because all these talented people you worked with. Oh, yeah. yeah. Go on, Katie, you were going to ask. Um, no, I was going to ask about your first TV gig and what your, um, how did, how is TV different from stage and do you have a preference? Um, right, okay. Um, my, well, believe it or not, when I was doing a Wildcat show called Welcome to Paradise, uh, Colin Gilbert, who was then setting up the comedy unit at the BBC in Scotland, because mm. he had a thing of, why are all the animal programmes made in, in Bristol? And why are such and such made here? Why can't Scotland be the place that you make comedy? And mm -hmm. he had been working on, uh, with Sean Hardy on um, Kick Up the 80s and things like that, yeah. programmes, and he had come along to see Welcome to Paradise. And it's classic of the ego of the actor. I was raging because I was playing about four different parts and Terry Neeson had the big number and Myra McFadden had that. And I was playing the journalist, the, the, the Glasgow mother, the blah, blah, blah. Of course, I was the very thing because I was doing different <laughs> accents and yeah. different stuff. And Colin was putting together a, a, a radio show called Naked Radio. Mm -hmm. And uh, he offered it to me and Myra, and Myra turned it down because she didn't want to do radio. I'd never done radio, so I was, I was, I'm one of those actors who goes, oh, that'd be good, <laughs> stupid. Mm. It was shite money, it was all that. Um, and we did it live at the Tron Theatre on Friday, and that's when I met Gregor Fisher, Ron Bain, Tony Roper with the three guys, mm. and me. Mm. As the woman getting the, the nurse, the wife, the, you know, the feet. Yeah. But the writers discovered on a couple of things that I was funny. And writers love people that can deliver a line. Yeah. <laughs> I get a laugh on it. 
And I, even, even with not very good lines, I can get a laugh out of it. I remember mm -hmm. a guy saying to me, yeah, I'm not too keen on your material, but you kind of have to deliver a line. I wanted to punch <laughs> him right now, but, but um, <laughs> uh, thanks for that. Um, but the, uh, so Colin got me along and said, I think, again, it was Naked Radio first or? Naked um, Video was the... And Naked, Naked Radio was first and then yeah. Um, we that was it. I I had done also with Wildcat. I'd done another play that Liz Lockhead had written, mm -hmm. and um, Liz had her first telly, which was set in a, a bra factory, <laughs> based on the Lee Jeans dispute. And then again, it, it? Oh, Sweet Nothings. That's Sweet what it was nothing. called. Oh, Sweet Nothings. Yeah, and it had great actors in it. Dorothy Paul was in it. Annie Kirsten, uh, Eileen McCallum, Freddie Bordley, um, I played Fred, Siobhan Redmond. And actually the director had Siobhan Redmond in for this particular part. And I came in and he went, oh no, that she should be, and Siobhan got another part. Um, I think it was a bigger part, whatever, but I was, I was playing one of the women, the young girls that lived in the factory, or worked in the factory. Um, and I did, that was my first real telly, which was a drama. And Colin Gilbert was also then putting together something called Laugh, I Nearly Paid My Licence Fee with Robbie Coltrane, which gave Robbie his real break. Um, was he not was, in Kick Up the 80s as well, though? It was a wee bit, he had bits in that. And Robbie, but this was about making Robbie a real star, uh -huh. not... Oh, there's that big guy in Kick Up the 80s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and Louise Gold was in it, um, who's a great performer, and John Sessions. Oh, yeah. Um, and so I, I went in and literally did a sketch in it. And then Colin, when he was putting together uh, Naked Radio, came to me and uh, got me in. And I, I thought I was going for an audition. And the next thing I knew, I was in the Botanics getting my photograph taken. And Johnny Watson was there as well as part of the team. And Jonathan had been at drama school with me, the year below me. And also in my first acting job, Johnny, I played in the one with 784. I was Johnny's girlfriend, Kate. So uh, it was a sort of weird serendipity of all that. And then... Um, when we we did Naked Radio live at the Fringe in the assembly rooms and Colin was looking round about for people who they needed a new TV sketch show and he said he was standing at the back in this packed hall going why am I looking for other people that are here mm -hmm. but it was at that point about the vulgar Scottish accent and um, he added Helen Ledra and John Sparks to, to make it for more for a UK audience, if you like. Yeah, yeah. And of course, if you watch the first series of Naked Video, and it was, I feel really old because people like Matt Lucas and David Williams, when I've been working with them, go, oh, we used to come home from school, we loved that. I was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But they, you know, it was one of those sketch shows they loved. Very hit and miss as well. Um, I mean, we had people like Paul Whitehouse, um, Harry Enfield, Nigel, but they were all sending in sketches to us for mm. 10 quid. They were young writers trying to do their own stuff. And we would sit there going, nah, not funny, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> um, and, and that's when I, I met all of them. They're, they're brilliant, brilliant. Um, because they would come up sometimes to watch it being recorded if their sketches were in. Mm -hmm. And that was where Ian Patterson sent in Rabsy Nesbitt. 
was a sketch in Naked Video. Uh Um, But it wasn't enough to sustain you. You would do, you know, six weeks filming or whatever. But ironically, in that first series, we're all doing different accents. You know, we're all doing Northern and we're all doing this, we're all doing that. Oh, and frightfully posh because we were like, oh, it's a UK audience, that classic Scottish thing of, oh, oh, they'll not understand us. Mm-hmm. All the research that went out across the UK was the reason they liked it was its Scottishness. Uh-huh. And it made it different from Who Dares Wins and uh, Alas Smith and Jones and all the other stuff that was on. Um, so that became its almost its selling point. So the second series, they went, don't bother with all the accents, do what you want. And uh, out of that emerged Rab C, or a guy with a bandage, as he was written as. <laughs> and then they put me as the wife into another monologue as wife of guy with bandage. <laughs> and then eventually got a name, and, and they were proven to be really... And another one, that Ian Patterson, who was living in the north of England at that point, and having got, tried to get as far away from Govan as he could <laughs> at that <laughs> point. Um, he, his humour was so funny and he wrote a character for me <coughs> called uh, The Divorced Woman. And where the immortal lines, which I do still love, um, you see the psychologists have got it all wrong. It's not chocolate that's a substitute for sex. It's sex that's a substitute for, cho- for chocolate. <laughs> because have you ever met a man that could measure up to a curly whirly? <laughs> <laughs> that is a great it's a great and it was one of those I mean that was early stuff and this would be 85 86 mm. right about then and and then out of all of those things came the comedy unit had, had sort of got a team together and then the uh, city lights came along and well, uh, amazing. Was, well in Scotland it was huge never transferred no. Um, uh, and uh, in those days, it, it was what made it so successful in Scotland. A wee bit like Still Game, I think. What mm. makes it so huge in Scotland is is actually what detracts from it being bigger elsewhere and being able to travel. I think Still Game did it a bit better, certainly, than in City Lights. Where David Kelly was just... Oh, wonderful. And... Um, so I, I did a bit part as Irene, and out of that came Pure Dead Brilliant. That was, uh, and that had been in Naked Radio at one point and transferred down, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And, and then they did, but in between times I was going off and doing the steamy, I did that. And um, that was one of the reasons I, I sort of withdrew from City Lights events because I was touring with that. And I was working with Michael Boyd at the Tron and, uh, you know, I, I loved being able to go and do other things. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And then uh, out of that came a pilot for Rabsy Nesbitt. Mm-hmm. And ironically, I was pregnant with my, my Katie at that point and um, was unable, uh, when, when they did the screen test for the Steamy for the telly version, I was only 29. And, and I knew I would look far too young. And they did all the makeup tests, but actually, as soon as I spoke, you could, t- you could see I was 29 and mm-hmm. Dolly was supposed to be 60. Ironically, I could play it very well now. But, um, <laughs> and I was pregnant. So, but looking back, had I done the steamy, I wouldn't have been available for Rabsy Nesbitt, mm-hmm. the pilot. So, swings and How many years was Rabsy Nesbitt? How many series? Ooh. A lot. In the, 
in the law, I think, I think we did in the end 12, but there was a break. I think we had done eight or 10, and then we had a break of a few years and did mm -hmm. a couple of specials and then went back and did a series. But for me, it was of its time. Mm -hmm. and, okay. and therefore going back um, I like the fact that we moved it on a bit and we did two series you know that Mary now had her own cleaning company with Ella called House Mice and, uh, <laughs> and the, first, uh, the first thing a working class woman does when she gets a bit of money is uh, get a set of highlights and a tan so I had that <laughs> Um, so they, they were, and they were, that was, they were good, but they didn't have the impact. I don't think that, and and so I really did feel, um, and as you know, I went out. And by that point, I had developed my own sort of persona, if you like. Yes. Through I mean, that. your versatility is well known. That you, I mean, you toured with Ca Calendar Girl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you've done a lot of stuff down south. You're not just... Well, that, that was another thing of... I'd, I I get things in my life where I was doing... With Andy Gray, I was doing Little Voice. Mm -hmm. And I was in Aberdeen, and it was a Thursday night in HMT. And, you know, a thousand people had turned up to see a play in Scotland. So I was like... Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I remember sitting in my dressing room going, you know, if this is as good as it gets, thanks. Mm-hmm. And I was 48 at the time, I think. And a week later, not even, a couple of days later, Michael Harrison phoned to say, given my number to David Pugh, because David Pugh was putting on a production of Calendar Girls and needed a piano playing, singing actor, blah, blah, blah. Would I be interested? And Bob thought, no, I don't think she wanted to do that. It's not a big enough part, blah, blah, blah. But actually at that point, it was exactly what I wanted. And mm -hmm. um, you know the weight of fronting things. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Kate, you know what it's like. The, the pressure, particularly commercially, of how many come through the door. Mm -hmm. And there was a perception as well at that point, because I, uh, I wasn't doing panto at that time. Uh, my mother had died, and I really didn't, I had no notion to go back. Uh, to the kings and I got to a point where I thought no I'm repeating myself I don't want to just be known as you do panto blah 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 and I I was looking for other things and I didn't want to be the name that drew everybody in or not and and so to be in a big cast with Shan Phillips and Linda Bellingham and Patricia Hodge, Gaynor Faye, Julia Hills, I could hide a bit and uh, I thought, oh, I'd love to do that. And also, it was a play that I thought would have a huge impact, and mm -hmm. for a play for women, mm -hmm. and that women would really respond to. And all, it had a great story, like the Steamy, it had a great story and a resonance with an audience. Um, but also that uh, I, I maybe had something to prove to myself. And what I proved was uh, London and English audiences thought it was funny too. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, yeah. I had that yeah. chip on my shoulder of, yeah. Or, or maybe they won't, but, but they did. And, and, and to have people like Shan Phillips go, no, give that line to Elaine, she'll make it work, yeah, <laughs> or yeah. whatever. And, and made it, it was an amazing experience to go and do. So, so all, all those sort of, believe it or not, David Pugh I'd first met 
when he came with Willie Russell to see my stand-up show at, um, was it at the Gilded Balloon? Um, and Willie Russell was doing his show at Assembly Rooms. And because I'd done Shirley Valentine, he came along, saw my name, came along to see it. Well, Willie had given us the rights for Shirley Valentine because he loved Drab C. Nesbitt. Mm-hmm. And then David Pugh had produced, I don't know, one of Willie's plays. And he then uh, came along to see it and reminded me that he had met me in the Hammersmith Odeon um, when we did Drab C down there. And so, and he wrote to me saying, I'd love to work with you one day, 18 years later. Never give up, never give up. 18 18 years later, he came back to me and said, would you do this? Um, And and it was a bit of a leap in the dark. Again, that thing of, it was an adventure. Mm -hmm. I was about to be turned 50 and I thought, right, uh, you know, you have to do something else with your life a wee bit, you know, and, and, and I'd, a pressure, but it wasn't the pressure of worrying about whether people were going to turn up or not by producing it yourself. Yeah. Well, you know, we could talk to you for hours and hours. <laughs> hours. I um, could. I, just, I could. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you had two, you have two daughters. I do. It seems that girls run in your family, don't it they? Seems, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. And uh, what, what would you say that you life lessons your mother gave you that you pass on to your girls oh um i don't know whether my mother gave it to me but i learned it from her and it's taken me a long time to learn uh, is uh, don't don't apologize for yourself i think for a lot of my life it's been that, uh, you know, I've been imbued with the no, no good enough gene. Um, and that has made me do 10 jobs when I could have done one. You know, I would, I would uh, just, just to keep up. That was also because of the sign of the times, because of the way a woman had to do 10 jobs to prove she was as good as a man or whatever. Yeah. Um, I'm really pleased. I, I think my mother taught me how to how to love. More than anything, she taught me how to be a great grandmother. <laughs> I'm a great granny. And I can <laughs> say that I, I, the relationship I have with my granddaughter is absolutely wonderful. And mm-hmm. um, that is a different, great joy in my life. It's totally different. different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, love I, think, I think you'd have to ask my daughters <laughs> if I've taught them anything. I think you learn by going, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I think that they probably looked at me. My daughters think that I, I always cared too much about being nice or, or uh, what other people thought. But they're stronger in that sense. They're stronger at going, oh, shut up. You know, um, and maybe inadvertently, that's what I've passed on. And they're of a generation of, of women that, that, I suppose I wanted them just to know they were loved for being here. Mm-hmm. And you've and blazed a trail for them. I mean, Hannah is is an actor. Yeah, yeah. And, and Katie's she, like, no way would I go near. She's <laughs> gone right. Well, yeah. Hannah did a play at the Gilded Balloon. Ah, yeah, it was great. It was so good, and yeah. it's great. And she was going to do one this year. Oh, I know. And, 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 and in many ways, though, so it's made her. It's made her write more and look at it. She's got a great. I always knew that she would, ne- it would, she would never have the career I've had in many ways. It'll be very different. She looks very different from me. 
she her but when I saw Fleabag, I mm-hmm. said to Hannah, watch that. Yeah. That's where you you know, uh, I don't mean copier, but you know, yeah. think of the struggles that she had to get there and mm-hmm. think of and, and Hannah's very similar. She for a younger woman's audience, she she thinks that way, she's funnier mm-hmm. that way, and mm-hmm. and she's now uh, because of that play, by the way, got on to the BBC Writers Room. Which so is she's doing that now, yeah, and writing away, and and it was that, that twenty minutes of the play that yeah, was on at mm-hmm. the balloon that she sent in, oh. and um, they were, she's been asked to perform it a couple of times, you know, in various places. They did it at the comedy festival in Glasgow, you mm. know, and I, I, as you know, with your kids, you're like, oh God, when they say I've written a play, yeah, <laughs> you think, oh God, it better be good. <laughs> no, it's terrifying. And, she did it. There was a there was a little company in uh, in Glasgow called Short Attention Span that encouraged people to do twenty minute plays. We, we put yeah, them that's right. Yeah, because um, I remember writing to you and saying, you know, this company's doing it. Yeah. That's right. And Hannah did that, and Bob and I went sitting like that, going, "Oh God, what we say it was very interesting piece of <laughs> all that." And what was brilliant was we we laughed. And uh-huh. Bob, Bob had read a bit of it and, and he, he leant across and went, and I went, oh no, we both, we both were like, oh shit, she can write, oh God. <laughs> no, in a way you were hoping that yeah. you could go, yeah, I went and do accountancy, darling. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but she could, she could do it, you know, and, and, and had a, had a take on life that was a bit from left field. And, and so that, but she also, it's not about fame and celebrity for it because mm-hmm. they've both seen the downside of that. They've yeah. both seen um, what, what that does when you're out as a family sitting at a table. When mm-hmm. you're, I remember I'm a mad uh, Celtic fan and Henrik Larson was sitting in a place where we were and Kate was like, oh, Mum, when she was little, there's Henrik Larson, can I go and get his autograph? And I said, how do you feel when people come to our table? Mm-hmm. And she went, all right. And she never went. Yeah, because she under she understood what that strangeness was and mm-hmm. and what it did to people and it's not that people are rude or anything like that, but it's almost like her mum was no longer her mum in that situation. Yeah, yeah. So I think I think they've learned a lot from that, and if nothing else, they've ploughed their own furrow and and to have the confidence to do that and. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I, I think just a constant embarrassment to them more than anything. <laughs> well, I don't know. I think it's down to your you and Bob's parenting, mm. and yeah, you're very good parents, and obviously very good grandparents. Yes, grandparents, <laughs> I'll give you. <laughs> I want to. Um, I want you to keep on keeping on, Elaine. You yes. keep doing what you're doing. You're doing it brilliantly. How are you coping with? Um, this lockdown business? Actually, I'm loving it. (laughs) Um, I'm loving it. I I, I realize how fundamentally tired I've been for a long time at my core. And um, there's lots of creative things to do, lots of stuff, but actually I'm not missing it. I I don't mean, and it's not because I'm so bloody rich, I don't need to work or any of that. (laughs) Yeah. But I have a lovely house with mm-hmm. a garden. I'm not in a tower block uh, on income support with three kids. Mm-hmm. 
um, uh, I, we'll get through it. We'll manage. We can eat. We can, you know, we have, uh, you know, we're lucky. We're very, very lucky. Mm-hmm. Um, Bob is hating it, my husband, because he can't go fishing. But um, <laughs> the, uh, but actually, I've managed to do all, loads of stuff in the house that I've wanted to do for ages. My yeah. house is Listen, you could eat your dinner off my light switches. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, but the thing that really annoys me is it gets dirty again. I know. <laughs> you clean it all, you think, yes, at last. And then you go, oh no. But uh, it's just having the time. Uh, yeah. to, I'm not, and I'm not missing being out in the world. Mm. I think because... I, I, in, in Scotland in particular, I, I am so visible, even when I go to Tesco or even when I'm on a bus or, or whatever, that um, the, I, I, or if you're doing a job, you're, you're in the press because you're promoting that, you're being involved in it. So yeah. actually, the, having the time I've read, I'm on book number 10. Ooh, I am, I have, I'm the most uncreative I've ever been in my life. Today's yeah. probably the most creative of me. <laughs> um, and uh, it's, it's also that thing, the good girl thing. I'm off and I've got permission to be off. Mm-hmm. I'm <laughs> yeah. not off because I'm lazy. Yeah. I'm not off because I'm a washed up has-been, which I might very well be. But I, 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 I haven't approved myself. I'm off because we're all off. Yeah. And I think that's quite a liberating thing for you to, yeah. for certainly for me to feel. And I'm not, I'm not missing. I think I'll be, uh, I'll be a bit tentative about going back out. I know. You know I think we all will be. Yeah. I, and you know, how panto and theatre and things like that are going to survive. And oh. certainly not this year, I don't think. Um, yeah, I know. Um, it's, and, it's a huge worry to. Huge worry. How are people going to survive? And, and I worry... I get overwhelmed with the sadness of it yeah. and how, how, how they've fucked it in lots of ways. Yeah, yeah. Um, the UK government by shutting down so late and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And also the, the scandal in care homes. Oh, um, and, and the fact that they're not seeing 70% of care homes are owned privately. Uh-huh. These are places run for profit. They should have had the PPE there already with no. the NHS. You can't blame the NHS for that. They would no. top it up. And these and they are organisations that employ women on low pay who are mm-hmm. who, with no sick pay who were going into work even if they were ill because they couldn't afford not to. And Not may so. well have yeah. taken that virus into an environment where they love the people they care for. Um, yeah. So maybe in a, you know, it's that crisis opportunity thing, we'll look at the, that. And, and with the day and everything, I'm thinking, here's the generation that gave us so much. Mm-hmm. For, and we're, we've shoved them in a care home and not even given them a, a, a proper exactly. funeral and death and all of that. Yeah. So maybe maybe we had to look at what austerity has done, what all of those things have done. And while we were all shopping and going to the theatre, mm-hmm. I'm paying 120 quid for a seat to go to the theatre in yeah. London. Maybe, maybe we have to look at things differently now. Yeah. I hope we do anyway. And, yeah. and it, sadly, it had to come like this. The whole environmental thing that everybody's been going on about, 
the air in Glasgow is beautiful. Yeah, it's like being different. up in Perthshire because there's no diesel. Yeah, there's no, um, and there's a quieter, different way of living. Mm-hmm. Um, and and maybe it is a time to bring in a universal income for mm-hmm. for everybody the way they have in Finland, and and so that people are not living hand to mouth all the time and and yeah. scared that. Uh, that that we have to look at whether whether we will or not. So I got overwhelmed with sadness and a bit of rage, as you can hear at times. But but generally, I'm I'm loving. As I read a great thing in the New York New York Times where a guy had written an article and he called it the Great Pause. Yeah. And I thought, oh, that's lovely, because mm. that's what we are. And I don't think we'll ever go back to normal. No. I, I, it'll be a different normal. How does the Gilded Balloon survive in that? How are you and theatres and performance spaces going to deal with it? I mean, there may be a vaccine if you've had an antibody test, but but even things like the Kings of Glasgow, they don't. They've got three women's toilets in the Grand Circle. You you know you can't run, you can't run theatres without. I was watching South Korea and they've got. You go into the theatre and you get sprayed and you wash your hands as you go in to the art gallery or all of those. They're yeah. going to have to spend money. Yeah, I know. Mm-hmm. I know. Absolutely. Um, and how do you how do you do that in TV at Raw? Yeah. yeah. I know. I know. That's um for us. Oh, to another <laughs> That's another discussion. That's Let's another discussion. Be positive. Yes. Yeah, yes. So yes. Positive. Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm going to say thank you very oh, much. Pleasure. But thank you so much. Thank you. Mama said they'll be.